Thank you guys. If you have a copy of God's Word, please take it and turn to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. We are in the middle, smack dab of the middle of a series of messages on the vision and direction for Riverview Baptist Church. Where are we going as a body? Uh, While you're turning there, let me say a word of thanks uh, to many of you who uh, reached out to my wife. I was gone this past week. I'm a trustee for the International Mission Board, which is the missions agency that we send missionaries to primarily, and um, was in Virginia and Richmond for the past week for some meetings, and many of you called and texted and brought meals to my wife, and I'm very thankful she was Wonder Woman this past week. So, Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 3 is where we're going to be today. We've been talking about where we are going as a body of believers. Where is this church going? What you hear every single week from us as a body is that we exist to guide people to Christ-centered identity and Christ-centered influence. And what we've been talking about these first two weeks are those two ideas. Identity, what does it mean to be a Christian? We learned that a Christian is not just a name or a title that somebody just kind of puts on themselves. That a Christian is somebody who's rejecting self, the authority and salvation that's offered from within, and embracing the authority and salvation that Jesus offers us. We then move to talking about what it means to live like a Christian in 2016. What does it look like uh, to use the influence God's given us for His glory in our relationships and our friendships and our family members that we have? And we learned that what Christians are called to do and to be is we are called to be a people that are multiplying, that we're investing our lives in others so they in turn can invest their lives in others. And we talked about how that happens is through the Word of God being poured into the hearts of people. The Word of God being poured into hearts of people. What I want to turn our attention to today is talking about what it looks like to be a church who takes this seriously. See, one of the mistakes that we can make is to think, well, making disciples and multiplication and all the stuff we've been talking about, you just kind of do it on your own individually. You kind of go your own way and you, you kind of figure it out. When the reality is what Jesus actually said in the Gospels and we see played out in the rest of the New Testament is his plan was to start an organization called the church. Maybe better calling it an organism. It's a life-giving, breathing organism that God put together for the furtherance of the gospel. And so what we believe is that while making disciples is a responsibility that every individual Christian has, we also believe that making disciples is something the church is called to be about as well. We believe that multiplication is not just an individual activity. We believe that what the Bible teaches is that there's a synergy that emerges from every member of a local New Testament church embracing that mission in which the sum of the parts is greater than the whole. What I want to show you this morning is what the church, what, is, what are we as a church supposed to be giving ourselves to? What is our calling as a body of Christians? With that in mind, please stand to your feet with me as we honor the reading of God's word. Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. Acts 13, 1 through 3. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. 
Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. This is God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word. Would you please pray with me, please? Lord, we believe that you are real, that you are the God who spoke the universe into existence, and you're the God who has pursued us with your son Jesus. And Lord, we believe that you've communicated all of this to us in your word. And so right now we pray that you would take your word and that your spirit would drive the truth of your word deep into our hearts. God, would you remove distractions and would you help us as we hear from you this morning to be not just hearers of your word, would you help us to be doers? In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. You can be seated. Acts chapter 13, we're jumping right kind of in the middle of the book of Acts, and so we need to kind of take a step back and get a little context to understand the significance of what's happening in Acts 13. In the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus makes a pretty powerful statement. He says that he will build his church and that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This is in the Gospels of Matthew 16. Jesus then goes on in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, to tell the disciples that they should wait in Jerusalem because he's going to build his church through giving them the Holy Spirit. Jesus tells them that the Holy Spirit's going to come and that the Holy Spirit's going to move the church, the disciples, to be the witnesses for Christ not only in Jerusalem, but in their Judea, Samaria, and ultimately to the entire world, what the Bible calls the uttermost. If you read through the book of Acts, you find that that's exactly what happens. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit descends And from Acts chapter 2 forward, the Holy Spirit begins to work in a different way than he worked previously. Before Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit would come on a person for a task and he would leave. From Acts chapter 2 forward, what we see is that the Holy Spirit comes into the lives of believers and permanently indwells within them. The Holy Spirit empowers them, moves them for the ministry that he's called them to. Acts chapter 2, that's exactly what happens. The Holy Spirit comes, he descends, he lives within the disciples, and they begin to speak in languages that they had never studied before. Known languages, so much so that the people that were around them in Jerusalem began to hear the gospel in their own languages. Out of all this kind of speaking the gospel, Peter emerges, who chapters previously had rejected Jesus, had acted like he'd not known him. Now, Peter, empowered by the Holy Spirit, stands He presents the gospel, and thousands of people come to know Christ. Thousands of people are converted, and the church is born in Acts chapter 2, 3, and 4. Well, moving forward, God keeps his promise from Acts 1, 8. He tells them, I'm going to send you from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And if you watch Acts, that's exactly what happens. The gospel begins to go out from Jerusalem into far-reaching places. One of the places where the gospel begins to take root is in this city of Antioch. Antioch was north of Jerusalem, and there are a group of disciples that begin to meet, and a church is formed. And in Acts 13, we catch up with them where we're reading about these leaders. They kind of had an all-star cast of leaders. Paul, who's called Saul in this passage, once a persecutor of Christians, now a leader in the church. Barnabas, a stalwart early Christian church leader, uh, are there, and they're ministering in Antioch. And the pivotal question comes, Should these five really great leaders stay in Antioch and just minister there? 
or should they go out? Should they stay? Because, of course, you know, at this point, there were still people in Antioch that didn't know Christ. There were people in Antioch that had no idea who Jesus was. Should they stay there and minister to the people there, or should they seek to press forward into places where they had not heard the gospel? Look at verse 2 for the answer to this. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. If you're taking notes or underlining in your Bible, this is the first occurrence of missionaries in the Bible. Because what we see is that the Antioch church didn't circle the wagons, didn't batten down the hatches, didn't say, well, yeah, there are lost people there, but we got lost people here, let's stay here. They said, no, we're called to send people to the farthest reaches of the globe. And so they don't pick two of their lesser known people. They, the Holy Spirit picks the two best leaders that they had. And they go and they move forward. And what we see is this in the New Testament and moving forward. The church... The calling for the church is that the church is meant to multiply. The church of Jesus Christ has a calling on itself to start churches who in turn could start new churches. So last week when we talked about individual multiplication, that every single believer is called to multiply in their lives, what we see is that multiplication is not just an individual activity, but it is eventually meant to swell into where the church itself births new churches. This is especially the case if you look at the New Testament, where they focus on places where the gospel has not yet been preached or there's a significant lack of gospel witness in those places. This is why Paul and Barnabas go to some of the farthest reaches of the empire at the time to take the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here's the principle that I'm putting forward to you. If indeed the New Testament teaches that churches are meant to multiply, churches are meant to grow and produce churches that are able to produce other churches, if that's the case biblically, and Riverview Baptist Church is a church, logically what we deduce is we are to be a church that multiplies. We are to be a place that is constantly prayerfully seeking to start new, healthy, local New Testament churches that, especially with an eye towards places where there's not a significant gospel witness. Now, if you're overwhelmed at this point as a part of this body of believers, that's a good place to be because this is an overwhelming call that God has placed on every church's life to birth new churches. What I want to do this morning in the remainder of our time is I want to show you five marks of a multiplying church. I want to help us get our minds and our arms around what does it look like for the church to multiply in 2016. I want to show you five marks or characteristics of a multiplying church from these three verses. Number one, a multiplying church finds itself in this kind of position, worship of God drives work for God. Worship of God drives work for God. Look in your Bibles in verse 2. It says, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Worship, this idea 
that we are called to ascribe praise and honor and glory to our God is a consistent priority throughout the entire New Testament and the Old Testament for that matter. We are called to be a people that are consistently declaring God's goodness and grace. But one of the traps we have to watch when we talk about worship is we have to distinguish between God-centered worship and human-centered worship. God-centered worship versus human-centered worship. What is human-centered worship? It's easy even for churches to get involved in this. Human-centered worship says our preferences, desires, wants, and needs are what's most important. Human worship says that we are the center around which everything revolves and our comfort and ease is priority. Human worship may talk about God. A human-centered view of worship may mention God, but God is merely a means to our own ends and accomplishments. God, in a human-centered worship, exists to make us healthy, wealthy, and wise. So I don't know if you remember the story of the, the, pro, the prodigal son, the parable in the New Testament, where Jesus talks about two sons, a younger one and an older one. And the younger one comes to his father and says, Father, I want my share of the inheritance. Um, I'm ready to go and live my life on my own. Culturally speaking, it was as if the son was saying, I want my third of the inheritance. I wish you were dead. Father, I would rather have your inheritance than be with you. See, the younger son had this human-centered view that said what the father had was more important than the father. Human-centered worship in our mindset today is where we make what God has and the blessings he offers us more important than God himself. This is in stark contrast between the type of worship we see in the Bible, which says God is the center. God's plans and purposes are primary. Who God is is what's most important to us. God is not a means to some other destination for worship. God is the destination for worship. God's the goal. He's the focus. That's the one we're worshiping, not what he can do for us. We're first and foremost praising him for who he is. This kind of worship we see in Acts 13 and throughout the Bible is what drives them. It's what moves the church to speak of God. And here's how that works. When we have a passion about who God is, and when we passionately declare his praises and goodness, that eventually overflows into our speech with other people. When we declare the wondrous grace of God, and we're passionate about that, it moves us to do something for God. A lot of times what you find churches trying to do is they're trying to do things for God, but there's no real passion or drive that's there. And so they start really good. Ever find yourself doing that? You started really good reading your Bible the first of the year, or you started really good doing maybe some things that you know you're supposed to do with your family, but you kind of putter out. Why does that happen? It's because there's not this passion that's moving us every single day to do that. What's wrapped up in a passion for God that moves us to speak about him is gratitude for what God has done for us. If this morning, if you're a Christian and you're saying, I want to be more passionate, I want to grow in my passion and zeal for God and His grace in my life, how do I do that? The way that happens in our lives is when we grow in gratitude for the grace of God. Gratitude for grace drives passion for God. What are we grateful for? What do you and I, if you know Jesus, what do we have to be grateful for? What we have great gratitude for is the fact that though we were in a mess and we had no hope because of our sin, Jesus Christ died in our place. 
though we had no chance of getting out of the mess that we were in, Christ Jesus made a way for us through his death and resurrection. Just about every single person in this room probably has been either directly or indirectly been affected by cancer. All of us have. All of us have had a family member um, who's died from cancer or that struggled with cancer. Some of you directly in this room have struggled with that and come out the other side. And every person that I know that struggled with the debilitating thing that is cancer and comes out the other side after treatments or procedures or whatever that they had to go through to get help, they come out very grateful, right? They come out saying, look at what I've been delivered from, this debilitating illness that kills so many people. I've been able to come out the other side okay. There's a gratitude there for what's happened to us. What you and I need to recognize is that every single one of us have something more serious inside of us right now spiritually. Every single one of us have a spiritual cancer of the heart. We have a spiritual cancer, which is called sin. And what sin is, very simply, is it's our desire to worship ourselves rather than God. We come fully equipped with this longing to gratify ourselves. And so this shows up in all kinds of places in our lives. It shows up with lust. shows up in anger or hatred towards one another. It shows up in pride. And if we've ever experienced any of these emotions, which all of us have, Every single one of us, the Bible is clear that because we've rejected God and worshiped ourselves, we deserve a sentence of death. What are we grateful for? We're grateful that even though we deserve to die, Jesus took that on himself. How can we be passionate and sing the things that we sing to the top of our voices? It's because we're thankful, grateful people. Show me a grateful person for the grace of God, and I'll show you somebody that's passionate about what he's done for us. This morning, about five... What, what time was it, babe? 5.05? Yeah, you're back there. There you are. 5 o'clock. Shelly, I'm working on my sermon. I'm getting things ready for the day. And she comes in and says, look, I'm going to take a shower because if I don't do it now, I won't get a chance the rest of the day. Okay? So she says, I'm going to take a shower. Uh, would you listen for Paige? These are famous last words, right? My, my page is seven months old. Okay? You listen to Paige. Okay, I'm working on my sermon. And of course, you, you know it, right? You know what's going to happen, right? She goes to get the shower, shuts the door, crying immediately begins, as if on cue, right? My daughter begins to cry. I listen for a minute, see if she's going to stop. It's apparent she's not, so I make a bottle. And I'm thinking about this gratitude thing as I'm walking up the steps, and I'm thinking about the sermon. I'm like, all right, well, I'll feed her, but I'll think about the sermon while I'm feeding her and praying and all this stuff. Well, I was starting to feed her, and she looked up at me and gave me this little grin. You guys know what I'm talking about? Little baby gummy grin that they can give you? And I got to tell you, in that moment, I wasn't thinking about this sermon. I love you, but I wasn't thinking about you. I was totally enthralled in my seven-month-old daughter. I began to study her face, right? I began to just be enraptured with the little hair that would go over her eyebrow. Her little finger, right, was grabbing my, 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 my finger, and, and, and she just, I just was smitten, Right? And I was sitting there thinking, God, what did I do to ever deserve something like this? What did I do to ever be given a gift like this little girl? I mean, Shelly and I thought we were done. We had the two boys. We thought we were finished. We sold all our baby stuff. And God said, no, you're not done, and gave us this little girl. And I was just overwhelmed by God's goodness and grace in that moment as I looked at her face, and I looked at her eating very peacefully there at 5.15 in the morning. 
And it hit me as I was doing that, as I was watching her, I thought, you know, that's exactly what we're supposed to do with Jesus. How do we stay grateful and keep the gospel from becoming theoretical? The way that you and I do that is by studying the face of Jesus. Thinking about the scars on his forehead, the nails in his, the, the nail scars in his hands and his feet. His side was pierced. Dwelling on what our Savior went through for us is how we stay thankful. At 5.15 in the morning, I, I didn't care where I was, what I was doing, because I had my little girl with us. There's that kind of principle that plays out in our lives when we behold every single day the goodness and grace of God. How do we stay grateful for God's goodness in our lives? It's by consistently beholding His grace, dwelling on it, thinking on it. George Mueller was a famous uh, pastor and uh, minister who started orphanages in England. And I would encourage you to read his biography. It's incredible um, about his life, about how oftentimes as he was leading this orphanage, they would have zero food, they would have no provisions, and he would pray. And then as soon as he finished saying amen, there would be like a knock at the door and somebody would be there holding food. I mean, just story after story after story like that. But in his biography and part of his writings, he comes to say, you know, for the first 10 years, the first thing I did when I got up was pray. But he said, after I did that for about a decade, I realized that that's not the first thing I needed to do. George Mueller said, the first thing I realized I needed to do, this is in his own words, the first thing I needed to do before I prayed for God to do something is I needed to make my, quote, soul happy in Jesus. I needed to stop and just dwell on and think on the goodness of God's grace before I went to God to ask him for something. And I think that's part of the key to this kind of passionate worship for God, that there's this passion that overflows from a gratitude that comes from beholding the goodness of God's grace. Worship of God, this kind of passion for Him, drives us to tell others about Him and to go and to make new churches. Number two, second mark of a multiplying church is prayerful desperation for God's movement. Look at verses two and three with me. It says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Prayer is a central component to the worship and the work of God's people in his church. We see it consistently through the Old and the New Testament. What is prayer? Prayer at a basic level is communication with God. It's communion with God, fellowship with him. But specifically in a nuanced way, prayer is a two-way conversation, right? Prayer is where we're declaring things to God. We're declaring His praises. Yes, at times we're asking Him for things. There are petitions that come out of our thankfulness for Him. But it's also prayer is a time when we're wanting God to align our hearts with His will. Prayer works in two directions. The New Testament church gave themselves to prayer at an incredible level. One of the reasons prayer is so important for us as Americans today is because prayer strikes at the root at one of the most pernicious sins we face as American Christians. One of the most difficult and deceptive sins we face today is self-sufficiency. We Americans are rugged individualists, and we pride ourselves on our accomplishments as a race. So we just finished the Olympics, right? We just finished uh, those, those games, and it was just consistently talking about how we are amazed at what human beings can accomplish, right? And, and how they can stretch themselves beyond what anybody thought they could do to accomplish great feats of amazement. 
And it's true in part, right? We are amazed at what people can do and the discipline and the work and the effort that it goes into that. But the danger we run is when we praise human achievements without recognizing God's provision and grace, when we disjoint those, we disconnect God's grace and provision and human achievement, it's very easy to make an idol out of what we've done and what we think we can do. That's what the Chinese Christian, after visiting America for a number of years and looking at how big American churches were, and he came back from America, he was talking to other Chinese Christians, and he said, they said, what, what impressed you the most about what American Christians have? And he said, oh, the things American Christians can accomplish without God. Buildings and budgets and stuff and We've got all these things, but, but what we need is not our own accomplishment and own ability. What we need is a desperate prayer for God to move. What we need today is not bigger, faster, higher, louder. What we need today is desperation for God to move. The reason prayer is so important is because it strikes at the root of American self-sufficiency that says, I got this. Prayer comes along and says, no, actually, I don't got this. I need God. Why is prayer and the discipline of prayer so important for us today? It's because it cuts at the very root of this prideful declaration of self-sufficiency and independence. Prayer is our way of saying, God, we need you desperately. What we see in this passage of Scripture is that it was amidst their praying and fasting that the Holy Spirit moved. Now, we don't know exactly how this worked, if the Holy Spirit was giving them an audible voice or just made it clear that Paul and Silas or Paul and Barnabas were to be set apart for this work. But we know that it was only amidst this environment of prayer and desperation for God that God began to move. Now, here's why this is so important. The reason a praying church is important, this kind of dimension for multiplication, is because we recognize that without the movement of God, multiplication is impossible. Without God's movement, without the Holy Spirit moving people, opening hearts, paving the way, opening doors, we cannot do what God's called us to do, and we cannot be who God's called us to be. I'm not smart enough. I'm not a good enough teacher. We don't have enough money. We don't have enough buildings. We don't have enough stuff to do what God's called us to do and to be. He has got to move if multiplication is going to happen. So what we have to do is we have to begin to remember that prayer is not a perfunctory exercise before we eat or just before we do something religious. We have to start thinking about prayer as foundational to a multiplying ministry. So this past week I was in Richmond for my meetings for the IMB and um, the IMB has the world kind of separated into regions and so every trustee has a subcommittee they're on where they get to connect with missionaries that are going to the farthest reaches of the globe. You, in fact, this past week, as a church that's connected to our convention, our denomination, uh, sent 27 missionaries to the farthest reaches of the globe. In fact, can we celebrate that together? 27 missionaries that we sent all over the world. 27. And I got to connect with the missionaries in my kind of subgroup, the affinity that I'm connected to, and one of the guys told a story that I want to relate to you about the power of prayer. Uh, the, the, one of the couples that I met with are going to a place in Central Asia. And the, the man in this couple had come from a Muslim background. He was raised in a Muslim country. Uh, came from a Muslim family. It was predominantly a Muslim nation. And uh, several years back, 
there were some American missionaries that came to his country to teach English as a second language, ESL, as a ministry. And they would set up this English as a second language learning center and use that as an opportunity to not only teach English, but to tell people about Christ. Well, this man that I was talking to, his missionary now, was going to this learning center and he came and, and they began to share Christ with him, began to share the gospel with him. And it went so poorly that even after giving him a Bible, this man I was talking to said, I got so angry as a Muslim that they were sharing the gospel with me that I cursed at them and I took the Bible they gave me and I threw it in the trash. And he said, I stormed out of this missionary learning center. Months went by and the man became, began to wonder if the Bible that they had given him was a doctored Bible. So he went to a bookstore to find a Bible. What he found was that the same Bible they had given him was the Bible they were selling at this, this bookstore. So he began to read the Bible, began to ask questions. Months went by, a couple years went by, and God was working on him. And he decided he wanted to go back and ask some questions about the gospel. And as the man was walking back into this learning center and opening the door, he heard the missionaries praying for him by name. Months, years had gone by, and they were praying for him by name. I don't know about you, but it would have been easy to quit praying for somebody that threw a Bible in a trash can. It would have been easy to quit praying for somebody that cursed and screamed at me for telling them about Jesus. But those missionaries faithfully, daily prayed for this man. And now, this man not only was converted, he came to know Christ as Savior and Lord, he moved to America to be trained, and now he's been going back as a missionary to tell other Muslims about the gospel. If we have forgotten about the power of prayer, if we've been deceived in thinking there's no power in it, I'm here to tell you there is power in prayer. If some of you have given up praying for somebody, some of you have given up calling out for a family member, a friend, or someone that you know, that you love, that doesn't know Christ, don't stop praying for them. Prayer is not just a perfunctory exercise. Prayer is foundational for a multiplying church. Number three. Number three is qualified leaders are developed and deployed. Look at your Bibles in verse one. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. These five leaders are called prophets and teachers. These are kind of proto-pastors. This is before the office of pastor and deacon were kind of normalized and officialized. But what we see is that as the New Testament develops, that there are two indeed offices that the church has in positions of leadership. Pastors or elders is one office, and deacons. And these two offices function to lead the church. Pastors are primarily charged with teaching and shepherding the people. Deacons are primarily charged with ministering to the needs of the body and sharing the load of ministry with the pastors so they can focus on teaching the word of God in prayer. And what we notice about the Bible is consistently for a multiplying church and for that kind of movement to happen, there have to be leaders raised up to move that movement forward. Because leaders function as guides and examples to the body. Now leaders, pastors and deacons, are not perfect people. But biblically speaking, pastors and deacons are meant to be exemplary people. So you wouldn't have to spend very much time with me to know that I am not a perfect person. 
But what our pastoral team is supposed to be, what our deacons are meant to be, is an example. So that if some of you came up to me and said, hey, I'm really wanting some help as a husband knowing how to love my wife like Christ of the church. I want some help knowing about how to lead my family to make Christ the center of our home. Do you know anybody that could help me with that? Anybody that's trying to do that? That pastors and deacons form as two kind of examples that where you could kind of come alongside some of them and, sh- and let them show you what it looks like to lead in those kinds of ways. The Bible makes it clear that the reason leaders are so important is because they form as catalytic movers of a multiplying ministry. Leaders are essential because God uses them to raise up a new church. So what we don't see in the New Testament is that you get 40 people together who all love the Lord and you just kind of move them out to start a new church. What you do see consistently is leaders being raised up, people going with them, but leaders moving to start a new work. Developing and deploying leaders is essential to a multiplying ministry. One of the reasons I mention this is because I'm very passionate about number three. Number three is one of my favorite things to do as a pastor. I want you to know that when you called me to be your pastor three and a half years ago, you did not call me to do all the ministry. You called me to train other people to do the ministry in this body. If you're taking notes, you can write down Ephesians 4, 11 through 12, where the Bible says that leaders are called to equip the saints for works of service. The reason that's important is because it's very easy in church life to view church as something you attend and watch, and that the pastors are kind of the professional ministry people. What we want to say is that there's no casual attenders If you're part of a church, you're in the game. My role is to help you fulfill the calling God's placed on your life and your ministry that he's given you. Pastors are not just players that are doing all the playing. They're also coaches helping other people get involved in ministry for the purpose of the gospel. One of the things that we've done here at Riverview to help move us forward in this way is we've established a nine-month leadership development process that helps people move from being interested in leadership to being equipped and prepared for that. Our nine-month process is pretty rigorous. It's called Entrust. It's based on, based on 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, where Paul says to Timothy, and what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men and women who will be able to teach others also. So in this nine-month process, we read several books. There's pretty rigorous challenge to scripture memory and other parts of that. But through that process, we're not just training people as leaders to have certain skills like teaching or some other type of ministry expertise. We're trying to teach them just to be biblical Christians, to learn how to multiply themselves and others. So that nine-month process is near and dear to my heart. That's something we're doing every single year as a way of training and raising up new leaders to one day prepare this church to launch new churches. There's another component I want you to be aware of, just as you're uh, knowing what's going on here at Riverview. One of the things that we've talked about a number of times at Riverview and that we're ready to begin to look at more seriously is a significant governance change in this church as far as how we're ordered and how we're led. Right now, the way we are led is kind of a CEO committee model where I'm the kind of the way the law and the government sees me is I'm the acting leader, head CEO person, and then we have these committees functioning in various capacities as needed. What we're wanting to move to and what we've begun to discuss is moving to a more team approach where we raise up multiple pastors that lead with me to guide the congregation 
in a team approach rather than a single elder approach. Some of these pastors will be paid. Some of them will not be paid. But we believe this is important for a number of reasons. One of which is most important to me is the fact that raising up multiple pastors to lead with me puts us in a better position when it comes time to multiply to have people ready to lead in that kind of way. In our next business meeting, we'll be talking a lot more about that. You can be praying about that. But just know this, if we're going to be a multiplying church, it has to happen through the development and the deployment of new leaders for ministry. Number four, what does a multiplying church look like? It's a diverse group of people united by the gospel. A diverse group of people united by the gospel. These five men mentioned in chapter 13, verse 1, are quite diverse. Barnabas, a Jewish early Christian leader, he was kind of one of the early Christian leaders in the church that was begun. Simeon, who was called Niger, literally that word Niger means the black one. He was most likely from North Africa and had black skin. Leader in the church, Lucius of Cyrene, also from North Africa, probably of Middle Eastern kind of appearance in his skin color. Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, he was probably raised with Herod, who was the ruler of the province of Judea. He probably came from a lot of money, a family of prominence to be raised with somebody like this. And then fifthly, you've got Saul, one who used to kill and persecute Christians, who was now leading them to the Lord and growing them and strengthening them. So what you see in these five leaders in this early church setting is a very diverse back group of people, not only culturally, ethnically, but you also see diversity, socio- diversity socioeconomically. They were very, very different people. Now here's what's important. Not only were they different in their composition as a leadership group and as a church, they were also to be diverse in their outreach. Look at verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now, one of the great things about the maps in the back of your Bible, if you have there, don't turn now, but later in the afternoon, if you want to look at this, you can look at where Paul and Barnabas went on their missionary journey. And what you need to know is they went to some pretty diverse places. They went all over the known empire at the time, the Roman Empire, to tell people about Christ. So here's the principle we get in Acts 13 that you and I need to think about for ourselves. The church, in its composition and its outreach, should be diverse. There should be diversity both in the composition, who the church is, and there should be diversity in where we go and what we do. Now here at Lake of the Ozarks, central Missouri, we don't have a ton of diversity. A lot of our diversity revolves around socioeconomic differences, right? At the Lake of the Ozarks, you have people that have, and a lot of people that don't have very much. What we believe is no matter how big your paycheck is, no matter how much money you've got in your bank account, no matter the size of your house or the type of cars you drive, what unites us is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Socioeconomic differences don't make a difference when we come together. What unites our diverse body is Jesus Christ. While we don't have a ton of diversity, we do need to recognize there's some measure of diversity here at Riverview in our community. At Vacation Bible School this past year, we had about 100 kids involved and enrolled. Did you know that this past year at Vacation Bible School, a third of the children who came to Vacation Bible School were of Latino descent? Hispanic children made up one-third of our Vacation Bible School kids this past year. And I want you to know, for my part, I love that. 
because they're in our community. In fact, we have, as a church, a very unique place in that we have a ministry we're connected to, the Latino ministry here at the lake, that we're connected to and support. Is Orel in the room? Where's Orel sitting? He's hiding. Hey, there's Orel. Orel, wave your hand higher. This is Pastor Orel. Orel's pastor of our Latino ministry. And what you need to know is in 2017, we're going to be taking a pretty gigantic step forward in our partnership and connection with the ministry that Orel leads. And one of the reasons I'm excited about that as, a, as your pastor is because I believe we are meant to reflect our community. You see, if we're just a bunch of people that kind of like each other because we're familiar and we kind of know each other and we like the same things, what, what's the danger in that is whatever we unite around, that's really what's most important to us and that's where our hope is. The reason I'm excited about multiple cultures, multiple socioeconomic backgrounds on this church uniting is because we're going to unite around the gospel of Jesus Christ. What we're going to connect around is the fact that we're people who've been bought with the blood of Jesus, not the size of our paycheck or the color of our skin. What the Bible teaches is one of the marks of a multiplying church is that it's a diverse group of people, but we're united by a singular gospel. Number five, and finally, is a multiplying church also is personally involved in sending missionaries to the farthest reaches of the globe. A multiplying church is a church that's personally involved in sending missionaries. Look at verse 2 and 3 again with me in closing. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. This laying on of hands is symbolic and representative of the church's affirmation on these people. And as I mentioned a moment ago, this is the first biblical instance we have of missionaries going out. One of the missionaries we as a church have sent out is a lady named Tammy C. Tammy, raise your happy hand. This is Tammy. Tammy is a missionary in Thailand through New Tribes Missions. We're very thankful for her and the ministry that she has. You'll be hearing more from her in a few months about her ministry on Sunday morning. But we as a church are not called to stop there. I'm thankful for Tammy. I'm thankful for what she's done and the ministry she's doing. We are called to continue to think about, pray about ways we can send people to the farthest reaches of the globe. Let me throw some statistics at you. In 1960, there were 3 billion people on planet Earth. Does anybody know how many people are on planet Earth today? Yes, she got it. 7.2 billion people on planet Earth today. 7 billion Missiologists project, these are people that study missions and study trends, that in the next hundred years, the population of planet Earth will grow so exponentially that there will be more people living on planet Earth in the next hundred years than all the centuries before it combined. Let me say that again, because I want to make sure we're all picking that up, okay? Next hundred years, population growth could exceed, could be approaching 20 billion, Okay? That kind of growth, there will be more people living on planet Earth in the next 100 years than all the centuries of recorded history before that. Now, of the 7 billion people living on planet Earth today, 2.8 billion are qualified and classified as unreached. 
Let me tell you what that term unreached means. It means that they don't know a Christian and that there's no kind of gospel preaching church anywhere close to them. In other words, they have little to zero access to the gospel. 2.8, close to 3 billion of the 7 billion people have little to zero access to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me be clear about what we believe from the New Testament. We don't believe anybody gets a pass. We believe that every single person before God is guilty because God has revealed himself through nature, through creation, and all of us have rejected that, and that makes all of us accountable to God. So what that means is every single person, just like America, doesn't matter where you live, if you stand before God and your sin, you stand before God guilty, worthy of the condemnation of a holy and righteous God in an everlasting hell. And what we believe and what we know is that 2.8 billion people wake up, go to sleep, live their lives, having, many of whom have never even heard the name Jesus Christ. So fast forward 100 years from now when the population's exploding. If those percentages remain the same, <clears throat> what that means is in the next 100 years, we will have more lost people on the planet than we've ever had in the history of recorded civilization. What I want you to know, church, is this simple fact. These 2.8 billion people that do not have the gospel, who if they face God in their sin, will face the judgment and wrath of a holy and righteous God. This is not New Tribes' problem. This is not the IMB's problem. This is not Campus Crusade. This is not Samaritan's Purse. It's not pick your organization. It's not their problem. Global lostness is the church's problem. It's our problem to own. It's our privilege and opportunity to get to send the gospel to the darkest places of the world. Should we give financially to send missionaries? Yes. But our investment and involvement based on Acts chapter 13 and the testimony of Scripture as a whole doesn't stop with just resources financially. We are called to prayerfully ask God to send Harvard laborers into the harvest in some of the darkest places on the globe. We are called to own the problem of global lostness. A multiplying church is a church that's personally involved in getting the gospel to some of the darkest places in the globe. This message I've shared with you this morning from God's Word has been unsettling. It's been unsettling for me to think about it this week. It's been challenging, but I want to remind you of one thing as I close. The only way we will be this kind of multiplying church is if we are desperate for God to move in our midst. What I want you to know as your pastor is that I am desperate to see us grow in our love and our appreciation not only for God, but in our desire to do whatever it takes to try to get the gospel to 2.8 billion people who've never heard about Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me to that end this morning as we close? Father, we thank you that you've given us your word, that it's crystal clear.